We're going to transition now to our time in God's Word. So if everyone go ahead and get out your Bibles, uh, hopefully you have your copy of God's Word with you uh, or power on your Bible app if need be. But uh, if you'll go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel 7, we're kind of having to shift gears this morning. We were tracking along in our well-lit path of truth Bible series, um, series walking through the Bible in conjunction with our Bible reading plan. And then we hit uh, the Easter season, and so we had some intentional focus there on the resurrection. And now we're transitioning back to uh, being in line with our Bible reading plan. And you'll notice we're in 2 Samuel 7 this morning. Uh, For our reading plan, we should be through uh, chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, I believe. But I I could not take us through 2 Samuel and not address um, the incredible work that God does and what God does here in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 because of how crucial this is to our understanding of Christ, our understanding of the gospel, and of salvation. And so... I'm excited for us to look there this morning. Before we dive in, I do want to point out, you'll notice in front of you, you do have the Lord's Supper materials. Uh, It'll become pretty evident, I hope, uh, as to why we're taking the Lord's Supper this morning in conjunction with this sermon. So we'll be taking the Lord's Supper at the end of this morning's sermon. Please make sure you've got enough Lord's Supper materials there for you and those around you. Now, I can tell you, I remember vividly, um, it's funny sometimes how different conversations from your childhood, different events uh, stick out in particular. And I can vividly remember this conversation with my best friend in elementary school. His name's David Dennis. Uh, He's a musician in Austin now. Uh, And I had this conversation with him and that there was no way, no possible way that he could have as much money as he said he did. All right, he, he claimed and he tried to convince me that his parents had opened a, him a savings account and put an entire $100 into that savings account, right? And I, I couldn't be fooled, right? I, I knew uh, that a $100 bill was the largest bill you could have, so there was no way his parents would give him such a fortune, right? Uh, and especially at such a young age, now, that interaction seems a lot more laughable nowadays to me and hopefully to you as well uh, because I feel like now I can't sneeze for $100, all right? So, uh, but what was it that caused me to think like that, to think that $100 was simply too much money for someone that young to have? And the, the word that describes that is perspective right? It's, it's the same thing that when you visit your old stomping grounds that causes you to say, I feel like they shrunk it, right? If you ever return to a place that you spend a lot of time, you're like, it was a lot bigger, I remember, right? Perspective shifts how we see things so that $100 is no longer this gargantuan amount of money, but you realize that that's, especially now uh, in the economy that we're in, is not quite as much. So, Our text for today provides one of the most important and powerful perspective shifts in all of Scripture. And it it gives us testimony to the perspective shift of one of the key characters in all of Scripture, one of the most recognizable characters. 
Because when we behold the sovereignty and the glory and the majesty of God, as he reveals himself in his word, it completely shifts the paradigm by which we see and understand his word and therefore this world and therefore our role in it. And so with that in mind, I want to encourage you to stand once again in honor of the reading of God's word as you are able. And we're going to read our text for this morning, which is 2 Samuel 7, verses 8 through 16. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word to examine and analyze and and unpack such a, a weighty and important text in Scripture, I pray that you would illuminate our understanding, uh, that you would bless us with that illumination through the work of your spirit and working through your word. I pray that you would focus our minds and hearts' attention on you in this time intently so that, as we've heard testimony this morning, from two of our sisters, one who bore testimony of her own coming to faith and and realization of your goodness, and then another of testimony of how you are making your glory known around the world. I pray that you would help us to see your providential working of redemption history to make your name known, to draw to yourself your people that we may glorify your name for eternity through the work of Christ on the cross. And I pray that you would help that understanding move our feet in obedience and help us not to live the same having that understanding. And may we not read your word the same. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So, in the context of 2 Samuel 7 is something really remarkable when you think about it. So if you've been reading along in our Bible uh, reading, you know kind of the events leading up to this. You also should know at this point the events on the other side of this. But David has just reached the climax of his time as God's anointed. 
So after years of running from Saul, he's officially made king. And then after being made king, he proceeds to defeat the Philistines, a, a feat which Saul could not ever officially accomplish. And he does so at the command and the power of the Lord. Then David returns the Ark of the Covenant back to its rightful place in Jerusalem after dancing it naked into the city at the behest of his wife. So what could possibly be the next step in this story? David's king. Everything's good. He's been made at peace with his enemies is what we read. Let's pick up there. I want to kind of read some of the verses leading into our text for this morning so we have full understanding of what God is doing in this moment in salvation history. So verse 1 there of chapter 7. Now when David, uh, no, excuse me, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So remember, he's just danced naked into the city, bringing the ark into the city out of joy and celebration uh, for what God has done. And so he's kind of having this realization. Verse three, pick back up. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, at first reading, you may ask yourself, as I've asked myself many times before, why would the Lord be displeased with David's sentiments here? Because that's what we're about to read, is that the Lord is, is not pleased with what David expresses in this moment. And he's also not pleased with how Nathan just says, go do all that your heart pleases. What could be the reason that this would be displeasing? That David, now that he's reigning as king, sitting in his palace made of cedar at this point, looks and says, I dwell in the house of cedar. How is it that I dwell here? But the ark of God dwells in a tent. So this dancing into the city, celebrating the ark is obviously fresh on his mind. And David's counselor here, his, the prophet Nathan, gives his own seal of approval to this, David's own anointing of the Lord. And that's kind of what he looks at. He's like, the Lord is with you. He's anointed you. He's obviously brought you this far. So do all that is in your heart. And I've come to determine, given, and, and I, I want to point this out as we move through, that given the context of the story as a whole, that it must be then that the heart behind David's plans is misplaced. I mean, that's, that's the key there. That Nathan says, go do all that is in your heart. So if the Lord is displeased, as we're going to read, then it must be that David's intentions here aren't so noble, right? They, at first reading, it seems like he's, he sees his house cedar. He wants to put the ark in a house for the Lord, and he wants to build the Lord a house. And so Nathan says, go do all that your heart pleases. What we see here is this is somewhat of a, a prideful and puffed up attempt to continue all the good things happening in his own life. That he has come to this point and he's resting high on his throne and he says, next thing I need to do, he has no enemies to defeat, no, nowhere to go to war to take over a, a pagan nation or to drive them out of the land or to, to free something up. The ark is now back in Jerusalem. 
And so this is an attempt uh, to continue what's happening in his own life. This text this morning challenges us with this question. Because this is what David is struggling with here, is looking at himself as the main character of his life. And our text challenges us with this question. Who is the main character of your life? And indeed, it challenges us with the question even bigger of who is the main character of Scripture, of of history, of life itself. When you sit back at the end of the day, are you overly consumed with thoughts of advancing the plot of your life, viewing those around you as mere supporting characters? Because the, the prevailing worldview of our time would have us think this way, would have us think that that this is the ultimate life, to, to only consider what do I want? Who do I want to be? How do I want to make myself up? A life in which we write our own story, blaze our own trail, celebrate who we are, who we want to be. And indeed, we've see, we see this throughout Scripture. And I'm going to point some of that out here in a little bit. But even within our own culture, from Sinatra singing, I did it my way, right, to Lady Gaga's Born This Way or Taylor Swift's Me, our modern culture is merely a continuation of self-absorption perpetuated since the fall. And this is what plagues David in this scenario, is that he, this, he needs something else to do, another thing to, to add to the, the list that has been his life. And so he says, I, I dwell in a house of cedar. Oh, I can build a house for the Lord. So what is God's response? Pick back up verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord, key idea there, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So again, notice how the word comes to Nathan to communicate to David, right? Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, I have been moving about in a tent for, excuse me. In all places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people? Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So the Lord's point here is that I've done all this, brought you this far, established you as a people, and I haven't needed a house to dwell in to do that. And so would you build me a house is the phrasing of this question here. To draw from an overused analogy now. I, want, uh, I hope you grabbed an outline on your way in this morning. I want to point us there. I want to paint us a picture real quick. Well, I say real quick. We're going to spend a little more time than normal, really, before we really dive in, that I believe this picture will draw our attention to the overwhelming glory of God the Father revealed in Christ the Son. Because we cannot know God apart from how God has revealed himself. It's part of what God wants David to realize here is that you cannot get my name further than I get my own name. 
You cannot do for me what I do not accomplish for myself. Right? So we cannot know God apart from how he has revealed himself. And the manner in which God has revealed himself is in his word. Again, we see it pretty clearly right here. That night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So God speaks to Nathan. And God has spoken to us in his written word. And so as we read his word, we see that God has a particular way in which he relates with his people through his word. You see, to understand what God is doing here, we have to remember what God has done to bring history to this point. And that's what I mean by, I want to paint us a picture real quick. So the first three points on your outline aren't going to be directly necessarily from our text this morning. And that first thing, as we prepare to look into the Davidic covenant, that first point on your outline is God relates with his people through covenant. Now, I want us to understand and give us a little mini history lesson here, because covenants are not exclusive to the Bible. All right? When we look at cultures and people's Across the ancient Near East, we see that covenants were commonplace among many different factions, pagan cultures, uh, different kings, uh, armies, all that such. A covenant in its simplest form is an agreement, a partnership. When you boil it down, that's what a covenant is. So throughout ancient cultures, we see covenants in all forms, in all shapes and sizes, covenants between nations that would agree not to war with each other as long as one did this and the other did this. Families, tribes, covenants between people and their pagan deities. So we'll agree to do such and such, and in return, we ask, or, uh, we ask, O rain God, that you provide and make sure that we have no drought so that we can have crops, right? So, so what do we make of this when we consider biblical covenants? Well, the reality here is that God graciously communicates with his people through means in which we can understand. So using the format of covenant, we have our biblical covenant. So covenants are not exclusive to the Bible. However, when it comes to biblical covenant, maybe you've already picked up on the key difference. When it comes between, with covenants between God and man, it is God who initiates and establishes the covenant. And there are six major covenants that shape our understanding of God and his actions in salvation history. Each covenant a different brush stroke in God's painting of redemption history that gives us a glimpse into God's character, purposes, and will. These covenants also give us an understanding of man's value and purpose in the eyes of our creator. We begin with Genesis. In the first three chapters of Genesis, we see a a covenant of works, and it is the breaking of this covenant that brings sin into the world and death through sin. We have all broken the covenant of Genesis 1 through 3. And this is the reality of our sinful condition. Well, then you move just a few chapters later to chapter 6 of Genesis. And we see the Noahic covenant. And this covenant is established 
by God between he and Noah. Noah does not initiate in any way that a covenant needs to be made after what has just happened. But we have the flood, and when the, we see this in Genesis 6, 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, this is the aroma of Noah's offering, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. And he goes on to say there will continue to be uh, seasons, summer and spring, and, and that he will preserve and, and protect earth and the world and keep it. In this covenant of grace, God promises that he will sustain creation so that man may live, even though he knows man will remain rebellious against him. That's just what he's had to do just now in the flood, is that he punishes the sin of the world through the flood, and he preserves for himself Noah, and then he establishes this covenant of grace saying that he will never again do this same thing, that he will preserve creation, sustain it. Well, next, the next covenant we have comes much later. It comes uh, about 11 chapters later in Genesis 17. We have the Abrahamic covenant. This one maybe you're more familiar with. We see this in Genesis 17, verses 4 through 6. Behold, my covenant is with you. So this is well after the Lord announces, first announces the covenant to Abraham in chapter 12. And then he continues to see the faith of Abraham. So God says this in Genesis 17, again, verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And this is a key part here. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So the difference we have between the Abrahamic covenant and the Noahic covenant is there's no stipulation, no conditions given in the Noahic covenant. That's why it's called a covenant of grace. Is that God doesn't say in the traditional covenant format that if you do this, I will sustain this. Well, now in the Abrahamic covenant, we see that According to Abraham's faith in God, God says, as long as you walk before me in this covenant, Abraham is told by God that through faith and faithfulness to walk before him, God will multiply him, promising him a land, a nation, and indeed through him, God's global glory of making of his people of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Well, then we move to the next major covenant. And we're now just now out of Genesis, which is in Exodus chapter 19. We see the Mosaic covenant or the Sinai covenant. This is the establishment of the Ten Commandments, right? And we read this in Genesis 19 verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. So this is God talking. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So God, speaking to Moses, tells him these things. And this covenant comes in continuation and faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant. Because what, what did God promise Abraham? A land, a nation, and then 
a global people. Right? And so this, God is saying to Moses in the Mosaic Covenant, he's reminding them how I brought you out of here, out of my faithfulness to what I promised to Abraham. So we know Abraham did not remain continuously faithful and sinless. So, well, then we also know that immediately upon coming down from the mountain, what does Moses find? Joshua says, I hear something. And Moses is like, yeah. And they get down and the people are worshiping the golden calf, right? And so... This covenant comes in continuation and faithfulness to the Abrahamic covenant. Although the descendants of Abraham show themselves unfaithful and rebellious, God maintains his covenant faithfulness. But here's the, the major theme that you're going to see through these covenants. As we look at the major Old Testament covenants, we begin to notice a few things. Man continuously does not hold, uphold their end of the covenant. But... God is steadfast in his faithfulness, not only to uphold the covenant, but to fulfill it and to establish more covenants based off of the previous and continually revealing his plan of redemption. In fact, it becomes clear that man cannot uphold our end of the covenant, nor do we even desire to is the, the real reality there. So when we read the Old Testament covenant, it's not as if God is saying, well, that one didn't work. So let me try this one. All right, Moses, you're up, right? But he is continuing in faithfulness that although the unfaithfulness and rebelliousness and sinfulness of man, God continuously upholds his covenant faithfully. The very purpose of the covenant is to highlight the reality of man's sinfulness and continually point us to God's grace and mercy in a new and coming covenant. So each covenant is not to be the thing from there on out, but rather each covenant is supposed to point man to realize, I can't do this. It is only God who can uphold it by his grace. And that's, in fact, the next point on your outline. God upholds his covenants by his grace. Now, you might think to yourself, what kind of cruel God would intentionally make covenants with his people that only he could uphold? And that would be a, a very uh, isogenic uh, humanist perspective, that we, that, and it would make sense from that perspective. But in fact, the other ancient covenants that we see outside the Bible show us that as soon as anything in the covenant was broken, the covenant, the entire thing was destroyed. So nations would go to war with each other over broken covenants. Families would break up over broken covenants. We would see all these different things happen over broken covenants. So when we see these Old Testament covenants, again, God is not saying, well, that one didn't work. What we see is God revealing both him in himself and his continuing providence in salvation history. And he's doing this as he reveals each new covenant. He's continually pointing to people to realize that this is not it. And that you cannot do this. You need me. 
And so he's continuing to reveal himself and his providence through salvation history. And we, when we realize that the covenants, God's law, are supposed to do just that, it transforms how we look at these covenants being fulfilled throughout Scripture. So God's word exposes the sinfulness of man, reveals the holiness of God, and points man to his redemptive purposes. And we see this time and again through the covenants. God's people directly breaking their covenant obligations in which God would be justified in destroying the covenant and doing away with the people. But God upholds his covenant obligations, not according to anything that people do or have done, but according to his grace. So we see the people worship other gods, fulfill their own desires, and then therefore they're sent into exile, into judgment, and given over to their own desires. But in the midst of this rebellion, God continues to show grace. In fact, he tells the people through his prophets that he will one day provide one who will uphold the covenants and redeem for himself a people for his own possession. And so the next point there on your outline is that God's covenants lay out his redemptive blueprint. And this is a big one. Because to this point, you might be saying to yourself, this is cool and all, but what does this have to do with today's text? And in fact, you haven't even gotten to today's text, right? So what I hope to be able to outline for you is that this has everything to do with today's text and everything to do with the gospel by which we are saved, in which we stand, and preach. Is that understanding the covenants and God's pattern and purposes throughout redemptive history inform our understanding of the gospel. What I want us to see is that as God's word unfolds, what we find are not a bunch of disjointed stories that simply give us good morals and life lessons and guidance, not a bunch of allegories to read ourselves into. Rather, what we see is a long arc of God's providential working to communicate his redemptive purposes to and through his people, that his glory may be made known across all creation. So pick back up with today's text in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, again, God speaking to Nathan, that he may communicate this to David. Thus says the Lord of hosts, we frequently highlight the importance of understanding the different names, different references and titles of God. Again, Lord of hosts means the Lord of heaven's armies. And how these frame what God wants the listener to understand. So here he wants David to know, thus says the Lord of hosts. Like you led the armies of Israel to defeat the Philistines. That's awesome. I am the Lord of hosts, right? So I took you from the pasture, right? You were a shepherd boy sleeping with the sheep, having to do daily chores and run off after sheep that had gotten stuck or run away, having to fend off lions, all these kinds of things. I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. So don't forget whose people they are. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. 
and I will make for you, so who's going to make it? God. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. So we're going to pause right there. The Lord does here a simple outline of David's life, only hitting just a few bullet points. But in these points, God points out his providential hand in all of it and reveals the purpose he has chosen David to serve in his, God's, plan of redemption. God clearly wants to remind David that the reason he is sitting comfortably on the throne is not because of his own ability to evade Saul, his ability to lead armies to defeat the Philistines, but that it has been God at work all along to bring him to this point. Not for the purpose of building him a house of cedar, a man-made kingdom, as if he needed one, but to serve his, that is God's, providential purposes. And the next thing on your outline there is that the Lord's actions in our life always serve the purpose of his glory. We are all too often caught up in pleading and seeking God's direction and action in our life solely based on what we can see from our vantage point and how it will affect our comfort. So our prayers are consumed with pleas for God to do this and that without any consideration, any acknowledgement or petition for God's glory to be the end goal. So if you want God to move in your life and do things that you want to see need be done, consider his glory and seek his will no matter what. And then you will find yourself satisfied not in him fulfilling desires of your flesh, but in him fulfilling the desires of the heart which he has redeemed within you. In fact, as we continue reading, God wants David to know that he has been providentially orchestrating his life not for himself alone. Again, that's David sitting high on the throne right here like, ah, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll build God a house of cedar. God was like, I took you from the pasture. So what God wants David to know is that he's been providentially orchestrating his life, not for himself alone, but for the community of faith and for his plan of redemptive history. Pick back up verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. It's a purposeful choice of words there. By the Lord. Here, the Lord further clarifies his ongoing future work in and through David. What he is doing is not just for David and his line, but that through David's line, he is preparing for himself a unified people that will worship him in spirit and in truth, who will have no fear of enemies nor desire for other rulers. Instead, he will unify them for eternity under the house of David. So, David wants to build the Lord a literal physical house. And the Lord says, no, you don't get to build me a house. I am going to build you up a house and not a physical house, but a lineage. And it's not going to be for your own glorification, but mine. 
And that's the next point there on your outlines as God is unifying his people here. God is glorified through the unification of his people under his lordship. So as the people are in a state of celebrating David, and David here is kind of getting in a state of celebrating himself, the Lord says, you don't get to build me a house. I build you a house that through that you may glorify me and unify my people. Moreover, what we see is that the Lord is going to make for David and his people, again, a house. And this is where it gets good. This term house is not in reference to, again, a physical dwelling, but a family lineage. This is the same idea that we see in Joshua, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord, right? So as for me and my family line. We will serve the Lord. So what God has told David is that he will not be allowed to build God a house as though he needed such, but rather the Lord will build David a house, not of stone or wood, but a dynastic structure which will stand for eternity. And so we read things like Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Again, each covenant continuously points to the next. So pick back up in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, so in other words, your days are numbered, David, and when they're fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, guess what? My work continues. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall, be, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So the initial fulfillment of this covenant finds itself in Solomon. As that's David's next born. The interesting part about that, which I can't even get to in this sermon, is Solomon's mom is, of course, Exactly. Solomon's mom comes from the sinful relationship that we see established between David and Bathsheba. Now, the first child that they have through that sinful relationship passes away in judgment. But from that relationship also comes Solomon. So through a sinful relationship, what started as a sinful relationship, God redeems for his own purposes and glory. And so the initial fulfillment of this covenant finds itself in Solomon. In Solomon, we see one who builds the temple, unifies the people under the lordship of God. However, the cycle continues, right? As even under Solomon, the same truth that we saw in every other covenant remains. Man cannot keep God's covenant. Only God upholds his covenants by his grace. 
But what makes the Davidic covenant so important is that here, God points us to one who will come on our behalf as the true covenant upholder. That's the next and final point there on your outline, that Jesus is the true covenant upholder. So as we are pointed to the new covenant in Jeremiah, and as we see here, God tells David, I will build a house and establish your kingdom before me forever. What does Jesus say to the religious rulers? Destroy this house and I will build it back up again. So that his house is not one of stone or cedar, but the church. Maybe you've wondered to yourself before, what's the big deal with David? Right? Have you ever wondered that? Like, we know thoroughly of his sin with Bathsheba. It's one of the more popular stories of David. We know of his killing Goliath. He's, he's such a popular figure in the Bible, but maybe you wonder yourself, why? He's such a popular figure in church education, Sunday school stories. David, 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 right? If I were to take up a poll from everyone here and simply ask, what are the top five reasons David is so important? I'd probably get a lot of answers like he killed Goliath, he was God's anointed, defeated the Philistines, returned the ark, from him came Solomon, right? And none of that encaptures the big picture idea here which is that Jesus is the true and better king from the house of David. If you want to know why David is mentioned everywhere in our New Testament, if you've wondered to yourself, why is David so important? Here's the thing. It has nothing to do with him and everything to do with Jesus. The purpose of David's story is not for us to ponder, what are the Goliaths in my life? It's not for us to ponder our own place in the story. How am I like David? How, am, how, 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 is, how is this life comparable? And where, what, what are the good virtues and the morals and the, the things that I can pull from this story and apply to my own life? When we read the Bible, we too often focus on the personality over the providence. The importance of David is not the personality, but what God providentially does through David to bring about his plan of salvation. And let this change how you read your Bible. David is not the main character in his own story. Jesus is. We see this in Psalm 89, verses 26 through 29. It memorializes in this psalm how the community of faith felt about this covenant between God and David. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, sound familiar, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens." Or how about this? Turn to Acts chapter 13. This is just too good. Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, this is pretty closely following Paul and Barnabas' send-off from the church at Antioch. Uh, they first um, 
go to Cyprus, and now they come to Antioch, Pisidia. So this is only like their second stop on Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas here. And here in Antioch, um, they set sail from there. They come to Antioch, and they begin to preach. After reading from the Law and the Prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And so this is what Paul says, starting in verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Mosaic covenant, Exodus, building up to the Mosaic covenant, fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness, rebellion against the covenant. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance, fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, a land. Verse 20, all this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, so it's God that removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Verse 23. Of this man's offspring... God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no. But behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent this message of salvation. And so this, friends, is why when I hear teachers, I say that loosely, like Andy Stanley making statements like we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, I can't help but shudder at the thought of people following that unlit path of darkness. Because without the Old Testament, we don't know Jesus as the Christ. The Old Testament is how we understand the good news of the New Testament. The Old Covenant points us to the New Covenant. That's why we have two Testaments, Old and New. And by the same token, the New Testament informs our understanding of the Old. This is why Matthew begins his gospel with a detailed genealogy of Jesus going all the way back to Abraham to show God's covenant faithfulness in Christ. This is why John's gospel begins with the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All of it pointing to the new covenant fulfilled in Jesus. In the old covenant, Moses goes up the mountain to receive the word. In the new covenant, the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And I want to point you, turn back, if you turn there to Acts, go back to 2 Samuel, our text for today. I want you to see David's response after Nathan goes and communicates all this because it's just, it's remarkable. So Nathan speaks all of this to David. Pick back up in verse 18. 
2 Samuel 7, verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Now pause right there. So David looks back on his life, bringing him from being a shepherd boy to being in the king's court, slaying Goliath, being anointed king, fleeing Saul, delivering him from Saul, bringing him to the throne, defeating the Philistines, bringing the ark back. David looks at all of that and says this, verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great, great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. So David now has perspective because he realizes that everything that God has done in his life has not been about him and building up his own kingdom, but now he realizes that he is but a small part of God's greater plan of salvation history from the beginning to bring about his providential purposes through David. And so David says that this was a small thing. My life, all that you've done, that was small. So all the things that we would think of that would be important about David, David looks at his own life and says, that's but a small thing when compared to this. Oh, Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. So now he has, I don't fully understand. I see now in part what you're doing through me. But you've spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for who? Mankind. So he realizes that God is doing something here that is way bigger than just his own house or his own people. I want to close with this thought before we move to our time of Lord's Supper. If you have a child in the nursery, if you want to go ahead and go get them so that our nursery workers can join us uh, for the Lord's Supper. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2, one of the, Paul's final correspondences with Timothy, whom he referred to as a beloved son in the gospel. Paul says this to Timothy. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, son of David, as preached in my gospel. One of the last things that he says to Timothy is to remember Jesus and remember him in his resurrection and as the one from the line of David whom God provided as the one true covenant upholder. And it is in him that we have the covenant benefits. The rights of the firstborn are passed on to us through the true firstborn, Christ. And this is the gospel, that he is the one, risen from the dead, son of David. So that the new covenant is that all of the old covenant is fulfilled in Christ. And that he is the one true one, the one true king reigning from the line of David.